So welcome to the Muscle Mentors podcast. This will be episode three of the digestion and gastrointestinal series. And, uh, and, and this is a pretty momentous occasion because uh, we've got our first guest interview, which is pretty damn exciting. And uh, both Callum and I are absolutely delighted to welcome the incredible Dr. Will Bolshewitz onto the show. And uh, for those that follow the doc, you'll probably know him by his nickname of sorts, which is Dr. B, the Gut Health MD. And, um, you know, furthermore, for those familiar with Dr. B, you'll know he has a pretty huge following and, you know, rightfully so, because the man knows his stuff. And that's uh, that's what's hugely exciting because it's a very, you know, it's a very easy thing to to read a lot about the areas we're going to discuss today and, and gain a decent insight. But that's not going to compare at all to like the experience and expertise of someone who's been working in the field of gastroenterology for the best part of 20 years or so so if there's anyone with an opinion that you want to listen to it's dr b and um but for uh, for those that don't know you um will tell everyone uh, your story you know what what you do how and why you got into it and kind of who is dr b and what's his mission well, first of all, I, w- I just want to thank you guys for having me on your podcast. And uh, the first thing that struck me when we started talking was you guys have awesome nicknames, the muscle mentors. Like, <laughs> I would love to be a muscle mentor, but I don't know if I'm qualified. Um, can, is there like, can I be a muscle mentor junior or something like that? Like, that's a phenomenal <laughs> name. I would, I would trade Dr. B, the gut health MD so quickly to just be the muscle mentor and see yeah. I, mean, I would be like strutting around like a peacock, you know, it just, it'd be, it would be very interesting to see how, how much my head would explode if I was called the muscle mentors. But anyway, uh, it's, it's an honor to be on with you guys. And you know, one of the things that I always wonder, cause we're talking and we're across the pond, I'm in the United States, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, and I hear your accent and I'm like, you guys have cool accents. And I feel like mine's not that interesting. Do you do, do you guys ever think that an American has a cool accent or, and you can be honest, like, is it, is our accent lame? Cause like, for example, I hear a South African accent and I'm like, that's amazing. What do you guys think? <laughs> give me, give it, give it to me straight. I think any yeah, different accent's cool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm such a huge movie fan. Yeah. Like, American accent for me is like, is the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually, when I read stuff, in my like in if i'm going through notes and stuff like that i'm often reading it in an american accent in my head which is pretty that's pretty hilarious yeah i mean i I know we're totally off topic here but i swear that like one out of two people in britain is either an an actor or a rock star like how do you guys do that it's incredible (laughs) i mean that's amazing it's like you know there's no good music coming out of the entire country of the united states even though everyone wants to do that but there's like a bazillion british rock stars right now so anyway, um, the, to answer your question, uh, I am a gastroenterologist, um, traditionally trained, you know, spent, I'm sure it's very similar in your country. I was spending 80 to 100 hours a week learning my trade, and that started at a very young age. I did four years at the university. I did four years of medical school. And then I did four years of residency to become an internal medicine doctor. And that includes a year where basically they selected me out of my class to be the chief resident. And that was at Northwestern University, which is in Chicago. And it's one of the most prestigious uh, um, hospitals in in our country. And then I became very interested in research and um, for a time thought that what I wanted to do was be a cancer epidemiologist. And so I went through this process where I was publishing papers. I published more than 20 papers that are in medical journals. And I went to the University of North Carolina, which has one of the top two schools of public health in the United States. And so by going to the School of Public Health there, Um, I was on a grant through the National Institute of Health that allowed me to further my career in terms of learning more about how to understand research, how to conduct research, how to publish research. And uh, I I just, the problem for me was that I missed my patients. 
I was spending too much time writing papers and sitting in front of a laptop and not enough time talking to people and dealing with their medical problems and trying to solve them. And so I felt compelled to actually give up all of that research training that I had and take it back to the basics and the the reasons that I chose to do this in the first place when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And that is to just get back in the office and take care of patients and help them with their problems. But I went through this period of enlightenment when I got in, when I started my career where, um, you know, I kind of started to feel like there is a lot that we are missing in traditional medicine. We have completely overlooked the importance of diet. And there is this entire world of research that has exploded since roughly 2005, 2006 on the microbiome, this community of microscopic organisms that lives inside of us. And no one, very few people are actually tapping into all this science that's there. The science is there. Like we don't need to make it up or speculate on a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot that we don't know, but we have learned so much. There's literally about 30 papers that are published every day on these topics. And so I became very interested in the role that diet plays. And if you're a gastroenterologist and you're going to start to get interested in diet, you have to start to get interested in the microbiome because you can't separate the two things. They're completely dependent on each other. And so I, um, I sort of had this period of enlightenment and I started to read and study and do this in my free time at night, what little free time that I had. And then I started to bring it into my clinic, into my practice. But I felt like it wasn't enough to have one-on-one conversations behind a closed door. I felt like, you know, people deserve to know what's going on. People deserve to know the truth about nutrition and about gut health. And the things that I saw on the internet, I felt like I didn't agree with what I was seeing and I didn't feel that there was a scientific basis for a lot of the conversation that was going on. And so I felt like I needed to enter into the conversation and, and have my own voice. And so that's when uh, two years ago I started my Instagram account, the gut health MD. And now it's grown. I, I really didn't expect this to be honest with you. It's been kind of crazy. Um, but it's just grown into, I have 11,000 followers, um, you know, a sort of loyal group of people who listen to my podcasts and it's just nuts. I'm a normal guy and I'm a, I'm a GI doctor, but I do, I do have great passion for what I do and, um, and work really, really hard and do everything that I can to make sure that I'm, I'm providing the best to the people who follow me and listen to what I have to say. Mm. Yeah, that's what's awesome. And it's like, I think that's one of the reasons for me kind of, you know, being a follower of you as well, one of the reasons your following seems to be so loyal and active and stuff like that is because it's, you know, everything you do seems so genuine. You know, it's like you do genuinely care. And, um, and that's, that. what, yeah, that's what's awesome. And how I did care. you guys, tell me, like, how did you guys get into gut health? Because you guys are very, I, I find this to be very progressive from a fitness and strength training perspective. And I think, like, we're going to get into the details for your audience here. But I think that you guys are 100% on the right track in terms of promoting the importance of gut health for the purposes of, you know, strength and fitness and all of that. But tell me, like, how did you guys get involved in this? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's mainly, I think it's mostly, well, I say mostly, like I, I, I think I've dug in deeper than Cal, but that, that's just, it's like one of the areas that I absolutely love. Um, and for me, it was basically that I had some issues personally and I was like trying to come, you know, figure out ways of having to improve my own gut. And then, and it kind of led me down the rabbit hole of the microbiome and, and what, you know, the role the actual gut plays in health and, and, you know, how we process everything we're eating and, and stuff like that and how we can make it better and how that essentially makes the body function more effectively. And then it, you know, it kind of led me down to the realization that we have this crazy thing called the microbiome that 
is like 99% of what it means to be human. And <laughs> if we want to, if we want to kind of be as optimal as we can be, it makes sense that that kind of needs to take center stage and kind of any approach we're going to have with regards to what we're doing with our bodies. Yeah. It's, you know, the thing is that it's, um, it is center stage whether you want to acknowledge that it's center stage or not, you know what I mean? This is the way, this is the way that your body is regulated. The gut plays a central role in essentially all aspects of health, at least to some degree, Hmm. Um, whether it be your metabolism, um, your uh, processing of food, the absorption of nutrients, um, the your immune system, your mood, all of these things tie back to the gut. And if you were to take the top 10 causes of death in our countries, because they're essentially the same with both of our countries, and you look at them, if you exclude, you know, for example, like lung cancer, clearly lung cancer is associated with tobacco use. But if you exclude the things like COPD and lung cancer that are clearly related to tobacco use, everything else on that list, you could go down the line and I'm going to tell you how this is related to your gut. And that includes heart disease. You would never think that the plaque that forms in the artery around your heart could be related to your gut, but it is. That's what our studies are showing us in recent years. And so it's really crazy and um, so I think it's really cool though, that you, that you guys are on top of this and that, cause I was, I was listening to some of your other podcasts and the level of detail that you go into, I was very impressed. So it's pretty cool. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. The, um, I, I think it's like, it's the thing where people have kind of taken the whole, if something works more must be better. And they're kind of like, okay, we need, you know, we need protein and stuff like that for muscle growth. And they're like, oh, that's, you know, that should be making up the most of our diet. And, and then they kind of let all the plants and, and all that side fall, you know, fall by the wayside. And then it's like, guys, if you actually look into the research, you don't need that much protein. Like the, 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 like the portion of our diets that need, that needs to be made up of animal products is like way smaller than you think. And yeah. then you get someone to, and like we've started doing this with our clients where we've kind of started, you know, increasing the, the amount of, plant-based foods in, the, in their diet and, and everyone's looking and feeling way better. You're like, ah, okay. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. It is, well, um, because you can, look, you can look healthy on the outside. You can yeah. be in great physical shape. You can have yeah. big muscles and you can have mm-hmm. rip-roaring inflammation on the inside. Mm-hmm. And that's not health. You know, that is not health. Looking physically fit, looking physically strong does not necessarily translate into a healthy body. And what we all want is we want health, we want longevity, we want to age well, we don't want to be 55 years old and on five or six medicines. Like, no, who wants that? No one wants that. And mm-hmm. this is where, you know, at an early age, the earlier that you start making that investment into, um, into your health with the way that you eat, the better off that you're going to be 20 years or 30 years later. It's, you have to start now, that's the truth. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, I mean, when we break down the process of building muscle itself, you know, it's not uh, like a healthy thing to do, really. When you break it down, it's like the body doesn't want to be super jacked. What you have to do to do it is 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 not kind of conducive to health. And then, but it's like there's ways you can do it, and and definitely maximize or you know or minimize the unhealthy side of things. And then. And there's also, you've got, people have got to consider, it's like, you're not going to spend your entire life trying to build maximum amounts of muscle. That's all going to end at some point. And then you've got to think of, what am I going to do after that? And right. when we, the stuff we'll discuss today with regards to like, the, how, you know, how people's diets should probably be made up. So like most people would, you know, and I'm definitely one that when I'm done with my goal of trying to build as much muscle as I can possibly build, the you know, majority of the foods I eat pretty probably entirely is just going to be plant foods because it's like, right. you know, if I want to be the healthiest I can be, that's probably, you know, you look at the research, you look at all the anecdotal evidence, that's pretty much what we should be doing. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that you're a hundred percent correct. And what's, what's interesting is when you take that concept, like 
you know, I've seen in one of your posts, you were talking about how um, plant foods, there really is essentially no evidence to say that plant foods are unhealthy. Um, and that's completely true. There is a, there is a mountain of evidence tens of thousands of studies demonstrating the health benefits of consuming plants. And there's almost nothing that that is legitimate that tells you that it's unhealthy to consume plants. I mean, obviously, if you take one plant and eat, you know, 20 pounds of it a day, that's probably not a good idea. That would be true with anything. Yeah. But what I find to be really cool is that there's all these studies that started really in the 1990s that are the, that are the backbone of what modern nutrition is and what many of the nutritionists that um, are out there, you know, what they sort of emphasize is based upon studies that have emerged since the 1990s. And we didn't, we didn't have the ability to study the microbiome in great detail until about 2006 because we lacked the laboratory technique necessary to actually see what's in there. And so essentially, your microbiome is made up of this community of 100 trillion microorganisms um, that are alive. These are cellular micro microorganisms that includes bacteria, it includes yeast or fungi, and these strange, weird, uh, single cellular organisms called archaea that have been on this planet for 4 billion years mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, live inside volcanoes. Like I, I can promise you, no matter what happens to our planet in the future, I don't know if we will survive, but they will survive. The archaea will survive and I'm sure the bacteria will survive too. And so, you know, th this is a part of who we are. They've been with us from the very beginning, all, you know, 2.5 to 3.5 million years of human evolution. There was never a moment where we were sterile. There was never a moment where our world wasn't cohabitated with these microorganisms. And so they live inside of us since they make up 99% of our genetic code, which is what you were alluding to. Only 1% of our genes are actually human. Mm. They help to uh, interact with our immune system. 70% of the immune system lives inside of your gut. And it is separated from the bacteria in your gut, the microbiota. The immune system is separated by a single layer of cells. And so that single layer of cells is thinner than a piece of hair off your head. That's how mm -hmm. close anatomically these bacteria are to your immune system helping to train it, interacting with it. Um, the gut regulates your mood because 95% of serotonin, which is the hormone which regulates your mood, is produced in the gut. And if I, for example, want to treat someone for depression, I could give them a serotonin reuptake inhibitor and that would increase serotonin levels. And you would think that that's in the brain, but it's Actually not. It's 95% of what that drug is doing, it is doing in your gut. Mm. And, and also your gut regulates your metabolism. So we have these fascinating studies where you take an obese mouse and you transplant the gut bacteria from an obese mouse into a thin mouse. And this is conducted in a lab, not in nature. And in that lab, you can control everything. You can control exactly what food you are giving to these mice. And so you take that thin mouse and you transplant the gut bacteria from the obese mouse into it. And you mm. do not change the calories. You do not change the content of the food at all. You give them the exact same food in the exact same portion and they eat it. Mm. And that thin mouse will become obese, which goes to show you the power of the, these bacteria. And so what's fascinating is when you take all of these critical functions, you know, this is the core of health, everything that you need to be healthy starts in this place. And you take all of these functions and you start to ask the question of, well, what promotes a healthy gut? And I saw that you posted on this and it's something that I talk about a lot. <clears throat> There's a researcher at the University of California, San Diego named Rob Knight. And yeah. he's one of my personal, personal heroes when it comes to this kind of research he's changing the game. Like he's redefining science for us. 
And so he stood up at our biggest meeting of the year last year. And the question was, what promotes a healthy gut? And he used this powerful database that he has. And what he found when he did this analysis, like this was not biased. I don't think that Rob Knight is plant-based. I don't think he is. I think he's an omnivore. But he did this study and what popped out of the study as the most powerful predictor based upon science of a healthy gut is the, is the diversity of the plants that you eat. And the more that you dig into the details of the way that your microbiome works, the way that these bacteria and yeast and archaea, the way that it all works, what you find is that they are fueled by the plants. The more plants that you eat, the healthier that your gut becomes and the more capable that it come, becomes at giving your body what it needs in terms of these things, metabolism, immune system, um, mood, all of these things. And, it, and what also becomes clear is on the flip side of that, when you consume animal products, it's just a fact that there are changes in the gut that occur when you consume animal products. They occur almost instantaneously and it, and it leads to a change that I don't think there's any scientist that would describe it as a healthy change. Mm. It does not lead to improved efficiency of metabolism, improved efficiency of the immune system. If anything, it drifts you away from that optimization that we're all striving for. Mm. That, that's like that's an area I've looked into because when, when I heard that, I was like, "Oh, that's that's pretty cool." That you know, the stuff we eat directly influences the guys that populate our gut, and like and like. So there was stuff where it was you know our our microbial inhabitants seem to change pretty regularly, that fluctuates, and and you know, some some stuff I was reading it seems to suggest that there's like three main interotypes or, or you know genera of bacteria that populate our guts and it's like ruminococcus prevotella and uh, bacteroides and I, I was and then i looked into some of the the stuff that is behind those guys and it was like you know they found that the dietary habits that will directly influence the growth of certain you know specific gene you know these genera and there's like the the genus prevotella that is more closely associated with carbohydrate and fiber consumption and is coincidentally also associated with less of the like metabolic issues that characterize many of the of like the non-communicable diseases out there as of late and then there's the you know the ruminococcus which apparently tend to thrive in the presence of things like alcohol and polyunsaturated fats and then which are two things that i mean it's pretty safe to say we don't we don't need to make up a large amounts of our diet um you know and like you know the research tends to be pretty clear on that as far as i'm aware um mm -hmm. and then like the bacteroides which you know seem to be more proliferative in the presence of animal products and like it's less clear but there's definitely some evidence but you know it's less clear as to how much we should be consuming that but there's you know there seems to be a lot of evidence to suggest that we don't need as much of this stuff as we think and right so, so i mean i suppose the question is you know is one dominant genus something we'd want or is that potentially kind of like stripping our microbial density a little too much or you know you, do you get what i mean like do, do, would we want to have prevotella as the dominant guys or, or is there a place for ruminococcus and bacteroides in certain percentages well um to answer that question first of all i would start off by saying that that it's it helps us um given the complexity of what we're talking about to break things into specific types like the enterotypes and so you know it makes it a lot more simple for us to take this complex environment made up inside your gut of anywhere from 300 to a thousand different species constantly evolving changing throughout the day literally um, and, and also we need to recognize that, you know, we're talking about this as if it's one big organ, 
but that's kind of like talking about the Amazon rainforest as if it's all continuous. Whereas you know that if you took the Amazon rainforest and you actually submerge, like basically put yourself in that rainforest, it's not continuous. There are micro environments within that rainforest where there's specific animals, specific plants. And that's the way that it works throughout our intestine as well, is that this is, this is an ecosystem, just like a rainforest. This is an ecosystem. And within that ecosystem, there are going to be different places where this, where there's unique balance, a unique balance of the bacteria, the yeast and all these different organisms and what are the different species. And this is what makes it very, very complicated and hard for us to, study and understand because it's constantly changing. It's completely dynamic. Mm. And, you know, our current tests depend on taking someone's stool and interpreting that. And that's like taking a summary. Again, that's like taking a picture of the Amazon rainforest and explaining the entire rainforest all at once. When Mm. we all know that it's so expansive that you're doing it a disservice to actually do that. And so when it, when it does come to enterotypes, to me, it's, it's very clear that you want to be in a health promoting enterotype, but at the end of the day, your gut is completely unique to you. It, I may be able to generally characterize it, but at the end of the day, your gut is completely unique to you. It's as unique as a fingerprint. There is no one on the planet who has a gut exactly like yours. And this is part of what adds complexity to trying, and frankly, makes it interesting, trying to manage disease, trying to manage and change someone's gut microbiota, is that you could say, hey, go eat this food, go eat kale. Mm -hmm. And the effect on each individual person is going to be slightly different. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because it really depends on that balance of bacteria that you have within your gut. But with that being said, there have been studies where they have looked at this. They've looked at the balance and the types of bacteria that you have, and they've compared different types of diets. And basically what you see, if you were to line this up, is that there is a spectrum. There is a spectrum of health. So this is not, we're not necessarily just falling into sort of bins or specific spots that what it is is that there's people who are falling across the entire spectrum and on one end which i would characterize as the least healthy end is the standard western diet in the united states we call it the sad sad the standard american diet which mm-hmm. frankly i mean look i used to eat this way so i don't mean to sound critical of people who are listening to this i used to eat this way but if you actually take a step back and think about this In the United States, 65% of calories for the average person comes from processed food. Like it's not even real. It's Frankenstein food. Mm. It's you're taking real food and you're transforming it to turn it into something that it's not. 65% of their calories come from that. And 20% or 25% of their calories come from animal products. And what's left is a honestly pathetically low. 10 to 15% of calories that are coming from plant products. And this is the complete opposite of what it should be. We should be striving. Like if we want to put a number on it of where we should be striving to be, I think we should all be striving to be 90% plant-based. That's what I honestly believe is we should all be striving to be 90% plant-based. And if you take, have you guys read the blue zones? Have you guys read this book? No, I've heard you speak about it. That is pretty fascinating stuff. So the, the Blue Zones is by this guy named Dan Butner, And basically, he was a explorer for National Geographic. And a, about 15 years ago, he came up with this idea of, I want, to, I want to answer the question, are there places in the world, not necessarily countries, are there geographic regions in the world where people live to be 100 years old at a rate that's like off the charts, like way more than in Britain or in the United States? And he ultimately found that there were five locations, which he wrote up in this book, because what he did is he immersed himself in these five places and he studied everything about the people to try to understand what the deal was and why were they living so long 
And so the five locations that he discovered were the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Sardinia off the coast of Italy, uh, Icaria, an island in Greece, Okinawa, Japan, and finally, Loma Linda, California. Mm-hmm. So if you take these people in Loma Linda, California, and you go, what, what the heck is the deal there? That's the United States. This is where the Seventh-day Adventists live. And the Seventh-day Adventists, part of their religious belief, their theology, is that they will come back to re-inhabit their own body. And so as part of their faith, they take care of their body. And you find that they are mostly either vegan or vegetarian, and there are some that are pescatarian. And so those people live to be, on average, they have a life expectancy that is eight to 10 years more than the average person in the United States, which is massive. Mm -hmm. If that was a country, they would have the longest life expectancy on the entire planet. There's a huge difference. And so what's really cool about this blue zone thing is that Dan Buettner is not a laboratory researcher. He's not Rob Knight. This is a guy who asked us a, a simple question and it just turned out that, you know, we now have the ability to answer this question. Are there places in the world where people live to be longer? He answered the question and what he found is that there were these cultural similarities among all five of these places completely separate, separated from each other. But there were these cultural similarities where basically all of these places, all five are 90% plant-based. They're not eating any processed food. And when they do eat meat, it's not, it's not the cow that has been locked in a stall or a pen its entire life or the pig. You know, this is the chicken that's been outside for two years hanging out and it's a special occasion because it's someone's birthday. Mm. And so it's just a very different approach. You know, in our countries, we are two of the three leaders in terms of meat consumption on the entire planet. And the third country is Australia. We are the three leading countries, all British colonies. <laughs> and, you know, we, and we are the leaders in terms of, of this animal product consumption. And you see what's happening. You know what I mean? You see what's happening. Um, speaking just in the U.S., we spend, we spend way more on healthcare per person than any other country in the world. We are literally doubling up the number two country in terms of our expense on healthcare. And yet, what are we getting for it? People that live in Costa Rica, a third world country, they have no access to healthcare. They don't have any doctors that are trained like me. They don't have any that are trained on the level that I am. And they are living longer than people in the United States. And so we just need to think about, you know, these things. I feel like when you think about science, to me, what I want to see, what I've been trained is you don't just look at one study and accept it as fact. What you do is you take that fact, you take that study and use that to build your argument. And the argument is strong when you have different layers to the story. When you can show me in a lab, when you can show me in Rob Knight's study, when you can show me in the blue zones, when you can show me in your personal experience, when all of these things line up to show us that the gut is healthier when you consume more plants and that leads to better health and longevity, I think we have our answer. You know, it's really hard to fight it. Yeah, it's so true. And that's like, I mean, it brings me to a point I raised in my, in the post that I think you referenced a couple of times, but the, you know, when when we're looking at how can we make our guts epic, it's like, is it, it's obviously eating plant, more plants comes straight in there, but then breaking that down, you know, is it, is it the fiber? Is it the reduction in the amount of animal based products that we're eating? Is it the, like the polyphenol content that's, you know, kind of, sculpting the microbiome a little bit or you know or is it all three <laughs> it's like and it's that and i think someone else i listened to i was listening to a podcast and that they i think they asked a similar question and they just said at the end of the day it doesn't really matter it all comes back to people just need to eat more plants and it's right. like yeah yeah no you're totally right and, and if i were to like you know give you a pop quiz and ask you what do you think it is i'm sure that your answer would be that it's a combination of all three and that would that would exactly be the 
correct answer. And so I do think that there are parts of that that are worth highlighting, um, which is that, you know, fiber consumption to me is an interesting topic because we are the most overfed cultures in human history. We have more access to food that's quick and easy and inexpensive than ever before. And our countries are affluent. There is no one who is starving. Poor people are not starving in our countries even. And despite that, despite that, I, I would say that our gut is literally starving. Yeah, I was literally going to say the microbes. <laughs> our microbes are starving. Exactly. And the reason why it goes back to fiber consumption. And I think it's important for your listeners at home to understand that the word fiber, everyone like medical doctors have misused the word fiber for a very long time. You cannot use the word fiber as if it's all completely interchangeable. The word fiber is like the word protein. You would never claim that the protein in the bean is the same as the protein in a cow. You would never do that. They're completely different. Mm. And the same is true when it comes to fiber. Every single plant brings forward different types of fiber and they each have unique benefits. But what people need to understand is that fiber has been mislabeled as in one end and out the other. That you eat it. And it's like a plug that moves your bowels and comes out the other end. And that's not actually the truth. And I'll give you an example of of how it it can work. If you take a saturated, uh, um, I'm sorry, a soluble fiber, uh, for example, wheat dextrin or inulin are examples of soluble fiber. You take those and you put them into a glass of water and you stir, it completely dissolves. There is no granularity. You can't even tell that there's anything in there. And yet, if you drink that inulin or that wheat dextrin beverage, you're going to find that your bowel movement is going to be even bigger. Mm. I would also argue probably more satisfying, but that's a totally different topic. <laughs> Luke loves to talk anyway, about fetal, so you'd love that. <laughs> we have to get into that a little bit. But anyway, the that's going to be your bowel movement is going to be bigger, even though what you just drank, this is not a plug. This is completely soluble. It dissolved 100% in your beverage. And so how does that work? Well, it comes back to the truth of what a bowel movement actually is, which is this is not predominantly waste from your food. This is predominantly gut bacteria. 60% of the weight of your bowel movement comes from gut bacteria. And when you consume one of these foods, inulin or wheat dextrin, they have a unique quality that we call prebiotic. Prebiotic means that it actually feeds, nourishes, energizes the bacteria in your gut so that they can do their job. Just like we need energy and so we eat food, you need to feed and energize your gut bacteria with these prebiotics. And so when you do that, you grow more healthy gut bacteria. And when you grow more healthy gut bacteria, you will find that you will have more frequent, larger, and more satisfying bowel movements. Mm. And so it's, it's just a fascinating topic. And my favorite thing in nutrition that I literally want to write a book about, because I don't mm. think there's enough people talking about this, is that this prebiotic fiber and I'm just giving these as examples. Inulin, which by the way, you will find in asparagus and Jerusalem artichokes and chicory and garlic. These prebiotic fibers, they're not in one end and out the other. They're in one end and they are completely unchanged through the stomach, through the duodenum, the jejunum, the ileum, all the small bowel. And then they enter into the colon. And when they enter into the colon, they are consumed by these gut bacteria. They have zero calories. They, don't, they do not cause you to absorb any energy personally. 
but they are consumed by these gut bacteria and transformed into these short chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, propionate. And if you look up what these things do and you read about it, you're going to say, I need more of those. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. People would wonder, like your audience is going to be a fitness crew, all right? They're going to want to know, does exercise change the gut microbiome? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. And guess what it does? It makes your gut microbiome more efficient at producing short chain fatty acids. That's the change. Your body is telling you that fitness is not just exercise. Fitness with exercise leads to a change in the gut bacteria that allows you to harvest more of these short chain fatty acids from your plant fiber. And so, so the point being that, you know, when we see this explosion of autoimmune disease, celiac, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, I could keep going. I have conditions that I diagnose twice in a day sometimes that did not exist 20 years ago. Autoimmune disease. This has to do with changes in the regulation of our immune system. And guess what regulates our immune system? Your microbiota and these short chain fatty acids, and they go hand in hand. You can't separate, you cannot separate these three entities. You need short chain fatty acids to regulate your immune system, to regulate your gut microbiota, and your gut microbiota in turn help to regulate your immune system. And by the way, when you feed your gut microbiota with fiber, they become even better at producing these short chain fatty acids. And so it's a cycle that mm. completely leads to self-improvement. Mm. So how, how, you know, hearing that and someone says, I saw it the other day, someone claimed that they, they didn't need fiber because they felt great without it. It's like, dude, it's like, ask yourself that in a few months time and then go and read, read, you know, read about the, the benefit of consuming fiber with regards to overall bodily function. So like, I think you need to be having some fiber, man. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, no, totally. And so, you know, there are, there are, um, things that exist on this planet that will make you feel really good in the short term, Mm. but everyone knows they're not good for you, right? There's a reason why tobacco got extremely popular. Mm. Would anyone claim that that's good for you? But there's a reason why people did it. They felt good when they were smoking. Mm. There's a reason why people like cocaine, They feel great when they use cocaine. That doesn't mean it's good for you. When you look at, for example, this concept of bulletproof coffee. All right. So in the United States, is this popular in your country? The bulletproof? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The the grass fed butter in the coffee. Yeah. So it's grass, grass fed butter and coconut oil, like a specific part of the coconut oil um, that is put into coffee and then you blend it all up. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like I understand that that makes you feel energized. You're you're combining high levels of caffeine with high levels of fat. And we evolved, there's a reason why we evolved to crave those foods. There's a, there's no denying it. We all crave those foods to some degree. And there's a reason why we evolved that way. You have to understand that human civilization didn't exist until 10,000 years ago. Mm. We, were, we were foragers. We were living day to day and 99% of human history from, you know, let's just call it 3 million years. 3 million years until 10,000 years ago, that's more than 99% of human history. We were living in famine. Mm. And the entire point of evolution, when you talk about like survival of the fittest and Darwinism, is just to get to the point of procreation. Mm. If you can procreate, then you can pass on your genes, and then it doesn't really matter what happens to you after that point. You see what I'm saying? Like it does not like it Darwinism doesn't care what happens to you after your you've had children. Whatever happens, happens. You've 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 passed on your seed, and that's what this concept of like evolution and survival of the fittest is all about. And so we lived in this period where 
we were starving. It was famine. And we and people were more likely to survive if they got their hands on high calorie, high calorie foods because they needed that for the purpose of survival. And so we evolved to have a taste for high calorie foods or for fast or for fast energy like sugar. We evolved to have a taste for these things. And we don't need that anymore because there is no famine. There is no famine in our countries. Instead, what we are stuck with is we have instincts that are designed to get us to survive to the point of procreation. Well, we're, you know, barring an accident or some sort of tragedy, most of us are going to do that. Most of us are going to survive into our 30s. And now what we need to do is we need to ask, okay, how do we engineer longevity? Because that is not survival of the fittest anymore. That is way past the point of procreation. Mm. This is engineering longevity. And to me, when you talk about engineering longevity, it's about taking care of your gut and promoting a healthy gut. And people who do the keto diet, high fat, Mm. high fat. Now look, like any diet, keto, paleo, whole 30, where you're cutting out processed foods, I'm with you. Mm. I support it. Um, But there are going to be elements of your diet that I don't agree with because the science from a gut perspective does not support it. And when you go keto and you go high fat, high protein, you are destroying your gut bacteria and you might feel good for a couple of months. There's a lot of things that people can do to make them feel good for a couple of months. It's going to hurt you in the long run. Mm. And that's the problem. And then you destroy your gut and it's really hard to rebuild it back up after you've decimated it. Mm. I've got a question. What, what, oh, does yeah. the, what does the Gut Health MD's diet look like? My diet? Yeah. Well, I, I characterize myself as plant-based. And so now I don't, um, I don't necessarily use the definition that I think some other people may use for plant-based. Some people use the expression plant-based to essentially mean a form of veganism Um, indicating though that the reason why you are consuming plants is for health purposes. Whereas, you know, as you guys know, veganism, you're doing it for health purposes, but you're also doing it for ethical reasons or for environmental reasons or things like that. So I characterize myself as plant-based. Now I am not, I am not vegan. Um, You know, I just do my best to consume as many plant-based fully vegan meals as possible. I don't drink dairy. I try not to eat ice cream, but I like it. So once in a while I have it. I try not to eat cheese, but I like it. So once in a while I'll have it. Um, I don't eat a lot of animal products. I eat almost no, almost no beef or pork um, or chicken. I do occasionally have fish. And so by occasionally, I mean maybe once or twice a week. Mm. That's about it. The, the majority of my meals, like for example, um, I right now am on a um, uh, a time restricted fasting kick a little bit, mm-hmm. and so my morning is always coffee, always hydration. I always wake up and have two big glasses of water to get the day started. Um, then I go to my coffee, um, and then I may do a smoothie. And when I do a smoothie for me, it's um, it's a combination of berries, greens, so like blueberries, greens, ground flax seed for the omega-3s. Um, usually I'll add either water or some uh, nut-based or soy milk that's organic. And then I have a uh, plant-based protein that I really like. And it helps like, you know, one thing I will say is that um, sat, like satiety, like getting that sense of fullness after a meal comes from the combination of protein and fiber. And so you need those two things to get satisfied when you have a meal. So if you have a meal that's all greens and not much protein, it's going to be hard for you to feel satisfied afterwards. And so I have a, a plant-based protein supplement that I really love and I put it into my smoothie in the morning. It's um, by a company called Genuine Health. And it's actually fermented. So it's a fermented vegan protein. So it's pretty cool because they take multiple different types of plant-based proteins to make it complete. 
they actually ferment the plants and then they turn it into protein. And what that leads to is a lot less bloating gas, like essentially none, essentially no bloating, and also more absorption. Uh, the efficiency of absorption is increased 40% by fermentation. So that's my breakfast. But sometimes I'll skip the smoothie and I'll just do coffee and water and essentially kind of fast it out until lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And then lunchtime, I uh, generally have a huge salad, multiple different types of beans on there to help me get through to the afternoon. Like if I don't get all of those beans, then I'm going to be hungry by two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon. And then my dinner is, it tends to be, I mean, you guys can see what I post on my Instagram. Yeah. Those are yeah. the things that I eat. Good food post. And, yeah, my food post. And so, and so those recipes that you see on my Instagram, that, that'll be dinner for me. And usually it's a plant-based meal. Mm. So that's sort of the approach that I take on a day-to-day basis. That's awesome. So that's kind of, that's cool that I didn't realize that you did actually have some smidgen of, of animal-based products in there. That's pretty cool. But, well, um, you know, I, I kind of like, let me put it this way. Um, when it comes to the, um, the ethical reasons to be vegan, when it comes to the environmental reasons to be vegan, I am 100% on board. Mm. But, but that's not where I'm coming from with my Instagram account. Yeah. I'm coming from a place of health. I'm, okay. not, I'm not here to try to tell you what your political view should be. That's your decision. I'm coming from a place of health. And to me, you know, there are advantages to being vegan compared to even vegetarian or pescatarian. There are definitely advantages. But I just do what works for me. And I, and I, and I think that everyone at home, I would really encourage people, don't try to be perfect. You're going to drive, you're going to make yourself crazy. Don't try to be perfect. Like you have to make room to be imperfect. I like, I like the way that when you introduced that, you said, because I think the one thing that people go wrong with here is they're trying to adopt these principles, but then it's 100% or nothing, and then it's never sustainable. But when you said, like, uh, I eat this most of the time, but sometimes there'll be occasions where I don't, like, that's, that's, the, that's the most optimal way, I think. I think you have to be. And, and, and also, when you start to change your diet, I would really encourage people that you need to make it an evolution. That's, this is my personal philosophy, and this is what I, I had success with myself, is don't, like, say, hey, January 1st, I'm making the plunge. January 1st, I'm like, you know, I'm changing my diet 100%. You have to understand, like, think about everything that we've talked about in terms of gut health and how the food that you eat is the number one predictor of the makeup of your microbiome. Mm -hmm. And if you wake up tomorrow and you try to radically change your diet, of course your body is going to rebel against that. You have a community of 100 trillion microorganisms that are dependent on your food. Mm -hmm. You need to make that change over the course of time, that sort of evolution is, um, is critical. Yeah. But so it kind of leads me on, I have a theory regarding the, the human diet and what, you know, how it should look. And I just air quoted there for the people listening. <laughs> the, but it's like, you know, we, we, we know that we ate a ton of plants and fiber back in the day throughout most of our evolution. Like the evidence is there. We've been able to study ancient poop samples and see that fiber intake got up like 150 gram a day mark in some cases. You know, and that, that's a lot of fruit and veg. <laughs> and, um, yeah. so we, but we can't really argue with it because we can see it happening there. And but then there's, you know, if 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 all we ate was because to have to hit 150 grams of fiber a day from fruit and veg, that's an obscene amount of food. And it's like if all we ate was fruits and veggies how is it that we have this amazingly complex digestive system that is so adept at breaking down animal proteins and fats and 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 then i thought you know there must be there must have been times of the year where plant-based foods were pretty hard to come by you know for instance like the dead of winter where prior to fermentation techniques we we lacked the ability to store food for lengthy periods of time totally so probably have seen you know we'd probably seen a greater prominence of things like fasting as well as the consumption of you know certain animal-based products because that was probably what was going to be mostly available well again it goes back to this this period of time where 99 percent of human history we're in famine you know we're in famine and and so yes we don't have access to that food so our body became 
adapted to fasting mm. and our body became adapted to wanting high calorie, high energy food sources so that it could survive to mm. the next, to the next meal. Mm. Um, so, but if you, you're absolutely correct that if you look at, at tribal people, there are still some cultures in the world today, both in the Amazon rainforest and in Tanzania in Africa, where they are, they have not um, adopted a modern lifestyle. Sadly, this is rapidly falling apart, you know, because basically the kids uh, get exposed to a cell phone and the minute they see that cell phone, they don't want any more part in their old tradition. But in these places, they're consuming 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day. And they have, they have 15 or 1600 species of bacteria in their gut. We have mm -hmm. 300 to 1,000. And most modern diseases, if you go down the line, all the things that we've been talking about, what they're associated with is a loss of diversity, meaning that you are losing species of bacteria. These people that consume 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day have 15 or 1,600. The best of us are already down to 1,000. Mm -hmm. And people are dropping down further and further. And so that's really disturbing. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to strive to be at 150 grams of fiber per day. That, I think, is an unrealistic expectation, and you're probably going to hurt yourself doing that. So I think that what is good, though, is to acknowledge this. I don't know what the guidelines in Britain say, but I'll tell you what they say in the United States. In the U.S., they recommend 25 grams of fiber per day for a woman, 35 grams of fiber per day. And yet, 90% of Americans are not reaching that. 25 grams of fiber per day is a quarter to a sixth of what these tribal people are consuming. And yet 90% of Americans still don't hit these numbers. I think that those numbers are way too low and we need to make it a focus to get higher. I think that if you're in the 50 plus range, then you're getting to where you need to be. It's hard to put any specific number because, again, this is a spectrum. This is not a light switch. This is a spectrum. It's shades of gray. And the, the further that you get up the scale, up to 50 or to 60 or to 75, the better off I think that that is for you. But you also need to evolve in order to adopt that kind of diet. I think you said that before, Luke, on another podcast where you said about people running into these digestive irregularities and issues when – fiber and all these plant-based foods are introduced when they're not accustomed to them and it's like your your level of tolerance to that um yeah absolutely um yeah i mean is that is that something that you see a lot with your patients and stuff top like oh, jacking fiber up kind of you can easily overdo it. You can easily overdo it. A lot of times people will start taking fiber supplements and I'm not opposed to fiber supplements. I actually take them myself because I really believe in them. And, and when I say fiber supplements, I actually mean prebiotic, the soluble fiber. Mm. Um, so, but when you start to do that, you have to start low and go slow because what you're doing is you're building up the bacteria to process that food. But again, it comes back, it all comes full circle. We're talking about fitness we're talking about strength training. And when, you, when your listeners at home are striving towards fitness and strength training, the change that's occurring in their gut is allowing them to process fiber at a more efficient rate. Mm. And so they're actually getting a jump start on that process compared to the person who's sitting on their couch watching The Simpsons. Mm. That's great. So last thing I would probably want to ask then, because uh, some, someone asked me to ask this, and it was also something I wanted to ask. Um, is like your thoughts on using greens powders to basically like increase the amount of phytonutrients in someone's body, in someone's diet. And like, is it something we should be careful about due to a, the sheer concentration of phytonutrients that may be somewhat alien to our body in that amount and microbiome and b, some of those formulas tend to lack fiber. So is that, is that something we want to make sure we're getting the real thing or are those enough? So I, so from my perspective, I think that the key point here is this. This is my philosophy when it comes to these things. There is no question that there is a place for supplements. Yeah. I, there is a place for supplements. But don't forget, this is the word supplement. Supplement. Mm -hmm. This is not the backbone of your health. The backbone mm -hmm. of your health 
is the diet that you eat. And you need to start there. And you cannot overcome a poor diet with supplements. That's not possible. You can't go to McDonald's and eat a, do you guys call it a Royale with cheese? Or does it, because it's not a quarter pounder. No, I think it's quarter pounder here. It's, um, oh, is it? Oh, okay. All right. So you can't go to McDonald's though and then go home and take a greens plus a greens powder and think that you just balanced out what you ate at McDonald's. You did not. You did yeah. not. And so, so there is a place for supplements. I also don't believe that people should be taking 15 supplements. You yeah. don't know what you're doing in your body or the interactions that can occur. The main supplements that I support, I'm a big believer in vitamin D. I'm a big mm. believer in omega-3 supplements. Mm. And if you want a protein-based powder, you know, I mentioned earlier the Genuine Health Protein, which is uh, plant-based. I really dig that one. I think it's a good one. I think it definitely needs to be plant-based. I do not support whey protein, which comes from cow's milk and is inflammatory. <laughs> um, and if you want to do one of those uh, greens type powders, I totally, I am totally okay with that. I don't have a problem with it. Just make sure that it's a clean product. It's organic. It's organic based. And again, don't make that the backbone of your health. It starts with diet. Mm. What about That's the awesome. use? What about the use of like exogenous pre and probiotics? I, I agree with prebiotics for sure. Um, probiotics is a big topic, but the one sentence summary is this. I think that there's a place for probiotics if they were completely, I guess I've already, this is more than a sentence, sorry, but. <laughs> was, that was impressive. <laughs> yeah, there is a place for probiotics. Um, we could all potentially, potentially benefit from probiotics, but they're expensive. And if you gave me a choice between the two, increased uh, optimizing diet, let me, let me put down the three right now. Optimizing diet, prebiotics, or probiotics. The order is that I just said them. Optimize your diet first, prebiotics second, probiotics third. That's the way that I feel about it. And something I mentioned on our last podcast, which Cal laughed, but it's like, you know, you, you'll be able to attest to this. Like, if we really want to make a difference with regards to populating or repopulating our guts effectively, you're looking at something like a fecal transplant, and it's that simple. Right. Well, yeah, it's, it's hard. I really think that what you need to start with is slow changes in diet. All right. Moving towards a plant-based diet. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's really the critical piece that is not going to necessarily come easy. If your yeah, gut yeah. has been damaged, then it takes time to do that, but you got to give it time. It may take years to really make that transition, but yeah. focusing on a plant based diet, I think is where the money is at. And you can add in fermented foods. I think that there's definite value to fermented foods, but Again, like the most important thing is starting with the diet. Mm. Anyway, that was um, that was awesome. But you heard it here first, people, or however many podcasts later that you've done. <sighs> More plants. <laughs> Can I be a muscle mentor now? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I mean that was amazing, and uh, you know we've got to let Doctor B go because he's a busy guy. But, um, you know, we'd hopefully we'd love to get him back on to maybe go into things like fermented foods and and. Uh, and probably go into the realm of probiotics a little bit more because that'd be cool. But um, sure. yeah, if, if he's if he's keen, that'd be awesome. Sure. No, that sounds great. I, I, it's been fun talking to you guys and uh, I, uh, I look forward to interacting with your, with your friends who are listening to the, to this podcast and they can come and find me on Instagram, the gut health MD um, I'm on Facebook too, under the same name. And then if you go to the website, it's www.theguthealthmd.com. And I have a newsletter there where I can go into more detail. Um, and a lot of my people, they, they enjoy that, you know, a higher level of detail than what you get from an Instagram post. So awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you again for coming thank on. You. It was, it was an honor. All yeah. right, guys. Have a great day. Hi guys, welcome back. I hope you all enjoyed that uh, segment with um, Will. He had to shoot pretty quick after that, but we will definitely get him back on at some time in the near future to continue with those um, with those topics. Luke, how are you doing? Yeah, good. It was um, it was a lot of fun. That very Will good. Um, but yeah, well, uh, that will be kind of the first instalment with with him but there's obviously so much more we can delve into and i know luke has a lot more stuff a lot more topics he wants to delve into in in greater detail so 
we'll just pick him up for a few more calls and and basically just create more segments of that series. Mm. Insane. Um, yeah, next week we'll be back with a Q&A number four, I believe. Um, so if anyone has any further questions on anything you want, um, drop them in, slide in the DM. And uh, remember that the seminar uh, details are now out for the 23rd of September, Sunday, the 23rd of September at um, Embody in London, which is all about uh, kind of variables to optimize uh, the nervous system for, in essence, maximum physique development. Um, and just to give you kind of a breakdown on the main areas that we're going to be focusing on when we look at the autonomic nervous system, um, we're looking at how the autonomic nervous system is impacting um, the gastrointestinal system. So a lot of the stuff that Will was talking about then, we'll, we'll start to delve into implications this can have on motility, nutrient absorption, um, neurotransmitter production, and much more. How the autonomic nervous system is impacting sleep and circadian alignment. Um, the implications this can have on differing sleep stages, the sleep cycle in general, sleep efficiency, hormones and neurotransmitters, and um, delving into kind of how the autonomic nervous system is impacting our ability to hypertrophy and our ability to maximize the training response. This is the implications this can have on our ability to use muscles efficiently to respond in an optimal manner to, to the stimulus that we're, we're creating in the gym um, and how this process as a whole is impacting muscle gain. Mm. Um, and the goal for us right now is to deliver this in a way that you can go away with actionable points that you can put in practice with either yourself or your clients the very next day. Um, you know, how and when to address these areas, tools that we'd use to track data with yourself or your clients, how to interpret this said data, um, and how generally we can optimize that client journey from everything we've learned, putting it into practice and, and running with it. Mm. It's going to be juicy. It will. And, um, you know, if you, want to, if you want any information on it, which we've just given you, but if you want the, like, the payment details and you want to book a place, then email either Callum or I at Callum at themusclementors.co.uk and me at Luke at themusclementors.co.uk and we can send some stuff on. Um, yeah. So the, probably the easiest way to do it is just uh, click email now on Instagram, isn't it? Yeah. And then you and, can go uh, straight through. Yeah should be exciting but that was a, that was a lot of fun and i hope you guys enjoyed it and i'm assuming there's going to be quite a lot of guys from america that we have tuned in for that that are following um been following will and um you know i hope uh hope you you, you weren't too turned off by our incredibly annoying british accents <laughs> <laughs> but no, like it. yeah i hope you guys enjoyed it and you know for those that are new to the podcast then feel free to leave a, a rating and review because it you know helps us out and um we can we can start putting out more of this this content you guys liked it so yeah thank you good stuff we will um speak to you all soon guys thank you for listening.